After a several-week excursion into the Old Testament, I want to return to the New to finish our series from First and Second Timothy. If you'll recall, we got to First Timothy four verse. I'm sorry, Second Timothy four verse six, where Paul says, "I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come." We talked about uh, about that verse uh, oh about a month ago, and. And one of the things we observed is that this reference to a drink offering is a very Old Testament reference. It's a very Old Testament concept. And so we just use that as a time to pause and to address a couple of issues that we could look at from the perspective of the Old Testament, the reality of evil. And we looked at, uh, we looked at a couple of other uh, issues that are current in our day from the light of the Old Testament we pulled in the New Testament as well, but we looked at what the foundation of the Old Testament taught us, uh, teaches us about a number of issues that are current in our time. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, uh, as we finish out this month, I'd like to close this series on First and Second Timothy uh, in time to have a, a, a Christmas series that I'm looking forward to. Um, uh, a series of messages in the month of December. But I'm going to ask this morning if you would turn to 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to read a lengthy passage. Um, I'm not going to cover the whole passage this morning. In fact, I'm only going to look at two verses from it. But I want to read the entire passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all that have loved, uh, to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's three main ideas from this text that I want to cover over the next three weeks. These three ideas are opposition, abandonment, and deliverance. Opposition, abandonment, and deliverance. And I want to cover them in that order. This morning we're going to look at the subject of opposition. Next week, yes, the uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving will be on abandonment. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving will be on deliverance. Um, just so that you know, uh, I'm not always governed by the calendar. Sometimes I do try to do calendar-specific things like the series on uh, uh, the Christmas series. But 
um, sometimes, sometimes that's not the case. However, I believe in this case, um, this, uh, this uh, message on abandonment will actually lend itself to some thanksgiving before we're done uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, today, however, I want to spoke. I want to focus on opposition. I want to look at opposition. I want to focus on verses fourteen and fifteen. So let me just read them one more time. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Opposition. Let me start with some background. First of all, uh, we don't know who Alexander was. We really have no idea who Alexander was. Um, I don't know if anyone has noticed, but uh, when, when you're in a court of law and you're trying to establish facts, it's hard enough to establish facts of things that happened last week, last month, last year. I, uh, this is like 2,000 years ago. So I always love it when I come across some commentator that wants to convince everybody that Alexander was who he thought it was. I'm just like, man, you can forget that. <laughs> you, you, you might be right, but if you are, it's by accident or something like that, right? Um, nor, would I'm nor am I certain it would matter a ton. Uh, uh, the truth is we don't know who Alexander is. Some think that he was the blasphemer that is referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, the name of the blasphemer, one of the two there, is indeed Alexander. Um, others, however, think of Alexander from Acts 19, verse 33. There are some that defend that position. Let me say again, the truth is, we just don't know. We just don't know. It's not clear who this Alexander is. And... And I actually am kind of glad that we don't know who this opposer was, because I'd like to say it this way, and I think one of these two things is true. Maybe both of them are true to some degree, but at least one of them, uh, uh, to, to, to a certain extent, might be important for us to remember. And that is, maybe this man, Alexander, is unknown because people who... who serve the cause of evil by opposing all that which is good, maybe it's true that evil opponents are either easily forgotten or just best forgotten. Maybe they're just easily forgettable people. You know why? Because you want to oppose that which is good, get in line. There's plenty of people that oppose that which is good, right? You want to try to try to accomplish something that is worthy in this world, something worthy, those people tend to stand out uh, because it's, it's, man, that's an uphill battle in this world, right? Maybe it's true that evil opponents are either easily forgotten or best forgotten. Now, when, I, when, I, when we get a little further on in this message, I think all of us have to grapple with the fact that some of us have had people that have had an evil influence on our lives, maybe people who hurt us, who feel like opponents to us, that you'd say to yourself, they're not easily forgotten. And as a matter of fact, some of them can't be forgotten because they're still present in my life. We'll talk a, a little bit about that in a moment. But just in the, in, in the big scheme of things, in the big scheme of things, in, in kind of the historic scheme of things, we might be able to say 
that the elements of good are, are easily forgettable, or, or maybe it's just best to, to not remember them too much. Okay? Secondly, we don't know how Alexander opposed Paul. We don't know how he opposed Paul. There are cases to be made for maybe he was present at Paul's, at Paul's first imprisonment. Uh, maybe he was uh, part of the testimony against Paul in the, uh, in the first trial that Paul faced. That's a possibility. There's others that say maybe it had nothing to do with the first trial. Maybe it was just Paul's ministry. Maybe during Paul's ministry there was this man, Alexander, that was, that was just speaking against uh, uh, anything Paul said as Paul proclaimed the gospel. Um, regardless, uh, this man, Alexander, was an opponent. The way it's described in this passage is that he opposed Paul's words, or some translations, he opposed Paul's teaching. Not clear exactly which way that would best be translated. He was an opponent of Paul. He was an opponent of the message that, that Paul was sharing. So we know that about Alexander, and then that's about it. That's about all we know about this man, Alexander. Now, the word, the word opposed appears there in verse 15. And, uh, and let's just, I'm not going to make a long list here, but let's just acknowledge that opposition can come to us in the form of a person. It can come to us in the form of a, of a person. But it can also come to us in other forms. It can also come to us in other forms. Um, I'm always hesitant to say certain things in a, in a place and time when you don't have a half an hour to, to, to talk about it because you don't want people to run to places where they shouldn't. But one of the conversations that I've had recently with, uh, within my family has been um, what the creators of the like button have said about the like button since they made it. As in, they don't let their kids use it. As in, they wish they hadn't made it <laughs> because of what it does to people because of the way that it affects people's brains and affects their, their, their mood, the way it affects their behaviors, the way it addicts and draws people in. The very creators of it wish they hadn't done it. Let me just say that we have, we have opponents that aren't always people. Now, I, I want to be quick just to say, not everything that is, that is harmful, dangerous, as an opponent to one person has the same effect on another person. Everybody, everybody hear that? Not every, in other words, I'm not sitting up here preaching a message against you know, social media and if you've got a thing in your Facebook page that says like, you know, that you're like going to hell or something like that. That's not, that's not the message this morning, okay? I will say this, however, this is giving away what's coming on uh, in a few minutes, but, but let me just say it this way. You'd better know who the opponents or what the opponents of your soul are. And two, you better be honest with yourself about it. 
Amen? Not all opponents are people. There are things that war against our souls. Opposition comes to the Christian life in many forms. In many forms. Not all opposition is obviously, in and of itself, inherently evil. Because of that, some opposition is very real for me that might not be for you. And there are some things that are very real opposition for you that I just shrug at and go, no big deal for me. Okay? But we have to be honest about the things that oppose our souls. We'd better be honest about it. We'd better face it. We'd better name it. We'd better be truthful about it. Because to bury your head in the sand is to let it steamroll you, I promise. Right? It will steamroll you. Okay. Back to that in a minute, not to the like button, just to the idea. So let me start with this. Let me start with what I'd like to call needless opposition. Needless opposition. I don't know how many of you can relate to this, uh, but my suspicion is that if we look hard enough at our own lives, we can, most of us anyways, find some ways that we have that we have allowed needless opposition into our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, there's an example from Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 40. Let me just read them to you real quickly. In Mark chapter 9, here's what happens. John comes to Jesus and, it says, and he says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. Now listen, there was another time when Jesus said, he that is not for us is against us. And it's always amazing to see who picks which line Jesus spoke and how they apply it. Right? It's like when there's things that are within certain margins, because I'm against it, I want to pull out, if they're not for us, they're against us. Right? Someone else on the other side is going, come on, if it's not against us, it's for us. Right? There, there, there's a lot to, to asking which line applies when. But please notice that in this instance, the disciples were all up in arms about someone who was, who was casting out demons, doing so, um, but was not a follower of Jesus, was not part of their band. And so, and so they tried to stop him, and Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. If they're not against us, they're for us. In other words, you're seeing a boogeyman. You're seeing an enemy that's not an enemy. You're seeing opposition where there's no real opposition. You need to take a deep breath, calm yourself down, and realize there's no threat here. There's no threat here. I'd like to suggest that, that, that what the disciples experienced is actually fairly common in our lives. It's actually fairly common. The disciples, in this, in this instance, developed a suspicious, competitive, exclusivistic view of ministry that caused them to react defensively against an unreal threat. It's the way a lot of churches talk about other churches. 
wait a second, we're on the same side here. Yeah, but their theology is a little off. Get in line, right? If we all knew where our theology was a little out of whack, we'd all fix it. We can't all be right. One day when we stand before Jesus, he'll take care of it. Until that time, let's, let's acknowledge that until we get into really blatant heresy within certain margins, we can just say, you know, I might not agree with that. God bless them to the extent they can be blessed. <laughs> okay? Lord be with. We don't, we don't have to make enemies where there are not enemies. But we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to view people in certain ways. As a matter of fact, let me just say this. I think sometimes the more fanatical we become about an issue, the more prone we are to see an enemy where there's not one. You know, sometimes our relatives are coming to us asking us to consider something because they're concerned about us. But because we're fanatical about something, we're certain they're against us. We're just certain they're against us. They think this about me because, because, and I'm being persecuted for Jesus. You're really not. You really may not be. You really may not be. You know, I've, I've told, my, my mom has given me freedom to share stories, and I've told some, some stories about some unflattering things. Let me tell you one about an interaction I had with my mom in which she was on the good side and I was a, a thousand percent wrong, right? My mom was watching my life and had never made a whole lot of commentary about it. But I remember one, one night, we were sitting over there when we lived in the house next door. So this would have been a long time ago, um, 15 years ago. And I remember my mom saying to me very gently one night, how did you get to be this way because you weren't raised this way? We were having a discussion about certain things that had become important to me in my life at that time. She just looked at me and said, how did you get to be this way because you weren't raised this way? My first thought was to sit up and say, you're right, I wasn't raised this way because that was wrong and now I'm right and, and I, here's what I've learned. Here's how I got to be this way. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that whether she intended it this way or not, the gentle question she asked was something that the Holy Spirit used to prick my heart. Because there was something about the way that I was conducting myself that was not right. I could put her in the position of being an enemy. She doesn't understand what I'm doing. I've become enlightened in ways my parents weren't. I'm doing this right. They didn't do that. I could have dug my heels in and it could have been a fight. She could have been my enemy. Right? We tend to do that. We tend to see animosity where... None is necessarily intended. Man, if, if we could learn to take a deep breath and to say, if they're not against me, they're for me, 
Maybe what they're saying is just something that I need to consider. Maybe it's an expression of their love and their care and their concern. Maybe they're not trying to hurt me. Maybe they're not against me. Maybe I could receive something from them. In other words, if we didn't turn people into the opposition unnecessarily, it would be good for us. It would be good for us. Does that make any sense? Okay. Beware of making up needless opposition. Beware of creating opposition where there is none. I mean, how many times one person looks at another, you said, I know the way you meant it. I, I didn't mean it that way. Yes, you did. No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean it the way you took it. Yes, you did. You're creating an opponent that's not really there. Okay? Didn't mean it that way. Didn't mean it that way. All right, needless opposition. If there's some way that the Lord needs to apply that, he'll, he'll speak to our hearts. The second one is this. Oops, sorry. Like, we're like the disciples. We get defensive and we see threats or perceive opposition where there is none. All right. Secondly, well, there is such a thing as actual opposition, so we need, we need to face this. In, in the passage that we read, Paul was facing had faced actual opposition from Alexander the coppersmith. So what, what do we understand about actual opposition? Well, first of all, and periodically I bring this up because every now and then it just comes up again. Somebody will say something like this. They'll say something like, you know what? I just don't understand what's happening. I, I, I decided I needed to get my life right with God. I needed to get, uh, these are just phrases that I hear often. I needed to get back to church. I needed to start having my devotions. And I got to tell you, that since I started, everything has gone wrong. Everything's gotten worse. My life's getting worse. This isn't working. Listen, here's just the, the fact of life. Doing good, I, I put the word often in there because it doesn't seem to go this way for everybody, but I'll just tell you, for most of us, doing good invites the opposition of evil. If you think for one second that Satan wants to watch you head in a right direction, by the way, every time you head in a right direction, you become a greater threat to him. He is not going to leave that unopposed. So just, I just want you to know the good news, okay? Resolve to do something good. Expect to be opposed. Expect to be opposed. Just come face to face with the fact that it's going, to be a, it's going to be a fight that you're going to have to get through for a while. Don't live under this mistaken idea that if I do what's right, everything will go well. Everything will just turn out. Everything will just kind of, I'll roll the dice and they'll come up whatever they're supposed to come up. It doesn't, doesn't work that way in life. You have an enemy that opposes God's will and he opposes God's work. The more you side yourself with the will of God and the work of God, the more you can expect opposition in your life. I will tell you some good news. Usually, if you weather it, you resist, you stand firm, and he, and he sees that you're not going to back down, he'll eventually back down. The opposition won't always stay there. It'll, it'll eventually crop up again in a different way. But... But you just need to know that where you do, where you head in a direction that is pleasing to God and right, you're likely to face opposition. 
Secondly, I think this is important to recognize. Satan can do actual harm, but he can't bring about ultimate destruction. Now, the devil's always in the details, but let me just tell you the way, the way I, I mean this this morning. Satan did actual harm to Paul. This is what Paul said. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. You can't get around that. The opposition of evil is able to do harm. But I will tell you this. Timothy was ministering in Ephesus. And when you read through the, next, the, the rest of the New Testament, what you find out is that the church of Ephesus became a healthy, vibrant, impactful church for a very long time. Oh, and by the way, I'd like to just add that all of us today are sitting here, at least in part, because of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Alexander did him harm, but Satan could not bring about ultimate destruction. Because I want to promise you this. Whatever harm he can do is subject to Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan can do a lot of harm, but he cannot achieve ultimate destruction. He cannot. There's a limitation on what he's able to do. Now, I'll tell you this, given the right set of circumstances and enough cooperation, he can do a lot of harm. I've seen him destroy some families. I've seen him on the small scale bring a lot of wreckage that was very destructive. Ultimately, however, ultimately, when you and I have the ability to step back, see the bigger picture from God's perspective, ultimate destruction does not, is not something that he can do. Not something that he can accomplish. A lot of harm? Yes. Ultimate destruction? No. Something we can take, take comfort in. Thirdly, I want to point out that the way some translations read, it's really hard to get a sense of what Paul is saying. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Well, that sentence all depends on the tone of voice in which you say it. He'll get what he deserves. He'll get what he deserves. God's going to get him for that, right? You can say it that way. You can say it that way. But let me just, let me just point out the two things that help us to understand what it is that Paul is saying and, and, and the spirit in which he said it, the tone in which he said it, right? the truth of what he was saying. The first thing is, when Paul says this, it's just a statement of fact. It's just a statement of fact. Please hear this and please remember this. There is a judgment day and it's coming. It's coming. Now, we human beings don't like to think about this a lot. But the Bible is abundantly clear about a day of judgment. About a day of judgment. Judgment day is coming. Evil does not get away with evil forever. The longest period of time that any person can get away with being evil is exactly one lifetime. 
there are a certain number of people that make it to the end of their lives successfully being evil. But that's the longest you can do it. It's the longest you can do it. There is a day of judgment. Paul was simply making a statement of fact. The statement of fact is, Alexander the coppersmith is going to face his own reckoning. We all are. We all are. Paul was, was this is a, a, a key part of Paul's theology. All of us, believers included, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and there receive according to the deeds we've done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. It's a, it's a, it's a significant part of, of the, the reality of, of how we are related to God. He is the judge. There is, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of reckoning. It's a statement of fact. In other words, there is no harm that is done to God's work or to God's servant that will not go seen or judged. It's going to be seen and it's going to be judged. Now, the thing that comes from that is this. This is point number two. It's a statement of fact, number one. And number two, the result of it is that the responsibility to judge belongs to God. You and I are called to forgive and to move on. It's God's job to judge. It was not Paul's job to get back at Alexander the coppersmith. That wasn't his job. In essence, what Paul is saying when he makes this statement, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. In essence, what Paul is saying is, I don't have anything to do, for, to do about him. I have to take my hands off of him. All right. I'm going to pause here for one second. I want to say this this way. My brothers and sisters... we find convenient ways to de-radicalize the New Testament. Part of the problem with de-radicalizing the New Testament is that it turns the New Testament away from something that any human being could achieve on his own and forgets that the New Testament is teaching something that we are called upon to, to live out that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. My brothers and sisters, the call of the New Testament is to do things that are, in some instances, downright irrational. Irrational. So, um, you, may have, you may have heard this before, okay? Um, the, the language of, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount is quite specific. If someone smites you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other cheek, right? Do you know what the significance there is? How Most people on planet Earth are right-handed. If I were to hit you right-handed... The normal way of doing that would mean I would hit you on the left side of your face. 
to hit you on the right side of your face, the idea is a deliberate backhand. In other words, this is not a threat of life situation. This is an insulting situation that is hurtful to you. It's an insulting situation that's hurtful to you. Someone gives you a backhand across the face, right? They hit you on the left-hand side of your face, or on the right side of your face. It means they're giving you one of these, a, a swat, a smack. So the, the Italian place that I grew up in, that was, the, that was the symbol. Whenever somebody, there was a number of them. But when somebody would get annoyed, they would go like this. They'd go, hmm. What it meant was, I just feel like backhanding you. I'd just like to give you the back of my hand, right? Like this. What Jesus is saying is, when someone hits you in a way that stings and insults you, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. I just want to pause here. The number of times you get to practice that in your life is a finite number. When is the last time you actually turned the other cheek? Now, I want you to hear this. We sing this morning, Jesus is Lord. And then we say, when we're smacked on the right cheek, you got no right At that moment, Jesus is Lord means I don't have a right to the reaction that I want to have. I have no right. That's hard to swallow. That's hard to take. You got to think about, you got to think about Israel being occupied by foreign forces and Jesus looking at them and saying, If they require you to carry their pack one mile, you go too. I don't want to be nice to these foreign invaders. I don't want to be nice to them. I don't want to do good to them. Yeah, but the New Testament calls us to live something higher for a profound reason. My brothers and sisters, you and I are not here to fight for ourselves or for earthly kingdoms, we are here to fight for the souls of men because the gospel is the only salvation they have. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. We're wrestling against the darkness of this age. You and I are called to represent Jesus, and it means difficult things. It means unpleasant things for us. It means things that don't come naturally to us. It doesn't mean you're a wimp and you don't know how to fight. It means that you've understood what the right fight is. The right fight is not to defend my honor. The right fight is to defend the interests of God. To promote the kingdom of God. Boy, how easy it is to lose sight of that. We fight for lots of things. We forget the way we're called to fight for the gospel. The way we're called to fight for the kingdom of God. You see, what Paul is saying is something like this. It's a statement of fact. He did me harm. 
It's the Lord's job to repay. That's a statement of fact. The Lord will repay. As a result, it's God's job to judge and to repay. I'm free to look past it and to move on. Can I just tell you one of the places I've come to in my life, or at least I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come to in my life, right, is, where, is when I, I look back and I see how many times I've gotten it wrong, where I, I, I've started a couple of times to pray, God, would you just give me one more chance to do it right? But then the next thing that comes around, I don't, I don't want to be tested like that again, because I, I know my track record, right? It's not great. I've gotten it wrong enough times. What makes me think I'll get... But, 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 the, but that thought of, God, I'd like to represent you really well. I'd like to re- I can remember times I haven't. If you give me another opportunity, by your grace, I'll do my best to represent you well. To do this, to do this in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. If I'm slapped on the right cheek I'll turn the other I'll turn the other we are called to turn the other cheek to pray for our enemies to forgive our offenders that's the side that belongs to us please hear this Alexander the coppersmith needs the savior and Jesus died for him he may have done me much harm it'll be God's judge to repay him oh and by the way If sometime between here and eternity, God saves him, everything changes. And now, Paul has to do for Alexander what the rest of the church had to do for Paul after he was done persecuting and Jesus saved him. Now we have to take you in as a brother. Now we've got to put our arms around you and welcome you. You're one of us now. The New Testament is a radical thing. It's a radical thing. Fourthly, um, Paul then warns Timothy. Please hear this. The, The radical nature of the New Testament does not turn us into deniers of reality. Paul says, you know what? This Alexander the coppersmith is not saved yet. He did me much harm. Timothy, you got to face the fact that he might do you some harm too, so beware of him. This is not Paul having a judgmental spirit. This is not Paul having a, a, um, a, a, a bad spirit toward Alexander. It means simply this. It means that as believers, what God calls us to does not include ignorance or gullibility. It means sometimes... We have to look in the face of evil, know what it is, and respond the right way anyways. Right? Well, it is what it is. Listen, Timothy, this man did me much harm. As of today, he is unrepentant and unchanged. You'd better beware of him because he's going to withstand your ministry also. Be alert. In other words, you and I are actually called to be as harmless as doves and as wise as serpents. We have to be as wise as we can't put our heads in the sand and pretend like there's not opposition, pretend like there's not evil in the world. There is. We have to be wise about this. We have to be harmless at the same time. 
Warning Timothy to beware was a matter of wisdom because Timothy was facing an enemy with a proven track record who was not repentant. Beware, Timothy, beware. All right. It's the reality of actual opposition. Let me close with what I've called self-imposed opposition. Self-imposed opposition. This is where I go completely away from 2 Timothy 4. And there's other scripture for what I'm going to share right now. I'm just using this subject of, as an, of opposition as an opportunity to address this issue. You and I have been called to be peacemakers, to live at peace with all men. As much as is within us, we are to live at peace with all men. Now, those instructions do not change two facts. The first one is, not everybody wants peace. Not everybody wants peace. There are some people that you can't make peace with. No matter what you do, you can't make peace with them. Now you're in the position of asking real questions, what do I, as a Christian, do with someone that I have sincerely tried to make peace with and I can't make peace with. What do I do now? Okay, That's a different message for a different day, a valuable one. Not everybody wants peace. But please notice this. The second thing is that because we are supposed to be peacemakers, to live at peace with all men, we should not be making our own opposition. We should not be making our own opposition which unfortunately we do all too often. My brothers and sisters, sometimes our thoughts, our words create opposition where there is none. Let me give you a quick example. Let me give you a quick example. How many times in marriage do we struggle because a husband or wife says something to their spouse about who they are or the way they are. And our response is something like, I can't believe you would hurt me that way. Now, listen, I want you to think about what, it, what is required for you to believe that they were trying to hurt you. Okay? Now, listen, I know there's all sorts of variables. Maybe their tone of voice. Maybe they did say it in a way that was kind of insulting and kind of hurtful. That's possible. Okay? But, but please hear this. Very often, the things that we take offense at and we look at that person across from us and we think, you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to hurt me. What you just said hurt me. If we were to stop back, stick a step back and think about it, it would be something like this. Let me use my case as an example. My case would be 34 years ago, my wife stood at an altar and said, I do till death do us part. Nobody put a gun to her head. She did it voluntarily of her own free will and accord. As far as I know, maybe God had some like, you must not. <laughs> you have to because you're the only one that will be able to live with this guy. No, I'm just kidding. But, but you get the idea, right? 34 years ago, she devoted her life to me has been a loving, faithful spouse for 34 years when she looks at me and says something to me about myself that I don't want to hear, I'm all of a sudden confronted with a choice. I either have to say, 
you know, maybe something about what she said is, has some element of truth that I need to hear. Or I have to believe, you know, this woman is just against me. Now, I have to explain why it is that 34 years ago she committed her life to me, why she's been a fa- and why she's held this truth from me for all these years, right? To pull it out now, 34 years later, to tell me something about myself. In other words, I, I look at some situations and I say to myself, do I really believe, right? I've done this with my children as well. My child will pull out some kind of comment and I'll look at them and say, say something like, yeah, you're the one when you came out. I remember the day when we were in, your, you know, in, the, in the hospital when mom and I looked at you and said, this is the one, we're going to beat this one up. This is the one we don't like. Yeah, you're not loved as much as your siblings are. You're the one. We decided this early on. This is the one that we're just gonna we're just gonna pound on this one. We're just gonna pound. No, I, that's insane, right? You might not like what I'm saying to you or what I'm doing right now, but for you to think that I'm your enemy is a really weird thought. But somehow it seems so common to us and makes so much sense. Don't make enemies that aren't there. Someone may share something with you that you didn't want to hear. It may hit you in a really sore spot that doesn't feel good to you. That does not make them your enemy. That doesn't mean they're against you. My brothers and sisters, that's what I refer to as self-imposed opposition. Where a child just grows up saying, I'm, gonna be, I, I'm not loved and nobody loves me. and You just made up your own. Now there's an opponent, but it's your own made-up opponent. Okay, It's not real. We do this all the time, including as adults. Let me go beyond people. Okay. This point is about people. Don't make up your own opposition. But secondly, there's many forms of opposition. This is what I alluded to earlier with the like button. This is where I just want to say real quickly a challenge to us this morning. In 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Here's the warning that Peter gives. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Which war against your soul. Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. In other words, there are things in this world that are not people that war against your soul. They war against your soul. Sometimes they are blatantly evil, like some sin, some form of temptation that would war against your soul. Sometimes they're circumstantial, adverse circumstances that are being used by evil to war against your soul. But sometimes they're things that in and of themselves are not evil at all. They simply are things, but they war against your soul. They war against your soul. So I've used this example before. I I shared it with with Brother Darren recently. I'll, I'll pull it out one more time as an example. Years and years and years ago, 
I was talking to my uncle. I won't tell you the story of how he had taught me to be a Philadelphia Eagles fan. He was part of the, this group that had taught me to be a Philadelphia Eagles fan. But one summer, I came up to my, I'm talking with my uncle, and I looked at my Uncle Mark, and I said, Uncle Mark, Eagles season's coming up. And he looked at me, and he said, yep, and I already know that God's not going to let me watch one game. And I thought that was the most insane thing I'd ever heard. Forget the fact that it was coming from Uncle Mark, who was the most rabid Eagles fan I knew. What are you talking about? He said, here's what I discovered. He said, all Sunday morning, I wore during the service to concentrate because the Eagles game is coming up. And all Sunday night, I'm fighting to either forget how excited I am that they won or, or to forget about how distraught I am that they lost. He said, what I've discovered is that this became such a big thing in my life that it's warring against my soul. Now, let me tell you what he didn't do. He did not stand up in front of the church and rebuke the men of the church for being Philadelphia Eagles fans. That would be legalism. Not everybody has the same problem to the same degree. Some men enjoy an Eagles game, and they might even be fans on some level. If they win the Super Bowl, they could celebrate. But it's not going to... It's not going to injure their souls from serving God. But please hear this. When it injures your soul from serving God, you'd better be honest about it. If it's warring against your soul, you have got to be honest about it. Because if you're not, it's going to pound you, and it's going to pound you, and you're going to wake up one morning, and you're going to think to yourself, how did I get to be so spiritually dead? so weak, so anemic, so disinterested, so powerless, so defeated. How in the world did I get here? Because there's been something that's been warring against your soul. And it's warred, and it's warred, and it's warred, and it's kicked you, and it's kicked you to the curb. My brothers and sisters, we have to be honest about the opposition that we face. And we have to be willing to say, in the face of this opposition, how would God have me to fight back? I can't just take it lying down. God, I've got to do something about this opposition. I've got to do something about this opposition. My brothers and sisters, we bring much self-imposed opposition on ourselves by the things that we allow in and then that we tolerate knowing that it's doing us damage, knowing that it's doing us harm. We end up in battles with enemies that wouldn't have had to be fought. Listen to this phrase, if we had just shepherded our own souls well. If we had just paid attention. This is not doing well. I am not doing well. This is not going well. I don't have the resources. I'm not in the right place. Listen, how many ways, how many times, I need to close, but my brothers and sisters, sometimes, sometimes, the thing to say is, I need to walk away from this fight. Listen, in Jesus' ministry, 
there were times when he called his disciples to go take a vacation. It wasn't because there weren't people that needed ministry. It's because sometimes if you're going to stay in the fight long enough, you need a break. You need a break. On the other hand, sometimes we take it so easy on ourselves that we're giving ourselves all these breaks and we need to get in the fight. My brothers and sisters, we need to be honest about the dangers that our souls face. I promise you this. If you take it easy on yourself and you let the path of least resistance be the thing that determines your course of action, you will never have time or give energy to the things of God. Why? Because the devil will busy it right out of your life. Promise it'll happen. You have to be honest about what wars against your soul. Why? Because this is where all of life comes from. This is where all of life comes from. My brothers and sisters, take care of your soul. Be honest about the enemies that fight against your soul. Be alert to it. Be alert to it. You must keep your inner life well. You must keep your inner life well. Be honest about the enemies of your soul. Please hear this last thing. There is no shame in this. Every single person in this room has enemies of their soul that they're susceptible to. Don't, don't let yourself be fooled. There is nobody in here that is so spiritual that does not have an enemy that could not undo them if they didn't let it. We're all in the fight, my brothers and sisters. You just have yours and I have mine. Admitting you have an enemy doesn't make you any weaker than anybody else. It just makes you one of the same humans that all the rest of us are. So guess what? Let's, uh, let's see if we can help each other fight well together. Amen? Let's just, let's just come alongside of each other. Let's love each other. Let's help each other. May God, by his grace, surround us with people that can help us live it is well with my soul. You have an enemy. You have an enemy. He opposes you. Be honest and fight the good fight of faith. Amen? I'd like to ask you to close your eyes, and I want to close by just saying this to you. If today the battle has gotten intense, the fight is not going well, I beg you, I beg you today, to not suffer in silence. Over and over and over again, we talk about this. Satan uses isolation to destroy people. Satan uses isolation to destroy people. If he can just get you by yourself, I can't talk about it. No one will be able to read. People will think bad of me. It doesn't matter. I don't have time. I don't want to. We are sitting ducks. We were not designed to walk alone. We all need help. I implore you that if the battle is, 
is strong right now. If the opposition is enough that your soul is struggling, please reach out to a brother or sister. They may not have the silver bullet answer. There rarely are such things. But I need someone to be praying with me. I need someone that I could call. If I needed to call you at 11.30 at night, could I do that? <laughs> Would you pray for me? Right? I just need someone that I know is fighting on my side. I implore you not to let opposition take you down without, without getting someone alongside you to fight with you. Because the phone you use to call them might, might ring back at you when they call you a month from now. We just take turns. We need each other's help. Would you take a moment and just say, Lord, here's where the battle is in my life. If that's not where you're at right now, you might know somebody that you would say, Lord, they're in a battle right now, and I'm going to intercede for them. But if you would just take a moment to join me in prayer. Lord, I come to you. I'm not sure if I've identified all the enemies of my soul, but I know some of them. Not always sure what to do about them. But I thank you that you are a strong tower, a place of refuge and safety, and the righteous can run to you in time of need. Lord, I... I come to you this morning praying for any brother or sister in here today that is in the heat of battle where the opposition has pounded and pummeled. And today, they may be feeling worn, may be feeling a little weak. Lord, I cry out to you on their behalf. I ask that you would give them the courage to face and to fight the way they need to. Lord, I know that there's something powerful about being willing to openly admit where it is that we're struggling and where we're weak. And I know there's something within us that just rebels against the thought of doing that. So I pray for a special grace I ask that you would give to each of us, Lord, the blessedness of discovering that there are people around us that would not necessarily respond the way we fear, but might actually, with compassion, come alongside us and walk and fight with us. Lord, let us not, for any reason, not for fear, keep ourselves from the help 
that you would have for us. Not to see threats and see enemies around us where none exist, but instead to realize that we have your help and that you help us through our brothers and sisters. So I pray that you would give us the humility to be open about the places where our souls are embattled. Come to us and help us, Father. Lord, for those who are in a place of strength and victory, I pray that that we would be compassionate as those who remember what it's like to struggle and who recognize that we may have a time where we need help again. Lord, may we, may we be willing to intercede, to pray, to pray hard, to fight hard for our brothers and sisters around us in their time of need. Lord, I just close this morning thanking you that while our enemies can do us much harm, Lord, that there is an ultimate victory that you assure us. And so, Lord, we lay claim to that. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen us, help us, and bring us out of that harm so that what Satan meant against us for evil, you would turn into good for us that we might walk with you. And Lord, do I dare pray that where there is evil, you would raise up a standard against it. We would ask that evil would not prosper. Lord, we desire righteousness to prevail. So we bow before you, Lord, and ask that by your grace you would enable us to fight on your side. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your mercies. Give us courage to be your followers in difficult times. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.